0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. It's hard to think of a more personal topic than the realization of identity, what it means, how we see ourselves, and how others see us. My guest today, Dubs Weinblatt, endeavors to provide a safe and good humored space for just this sort of exploration through their organization. Thank you for coming out. The mission is to celebrate LGBTQ improvisers and storytellers of all experience levels, which Weinblatt also does on their Thank You for Coming Out podcasts. Guests have included Ad and Ripon, Glennon Doyle, and Sarah Bareilles, to name a few. Thank You for Coming Out also offers informative workshops to help other organizations foster the skills of listening to, respecting, and connecting to those around them, in which my agency KWT Global recently took part. Dubs, welcome to Brand on Purpose.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm very excited for you to be here. It's always great to have another fellow podcaster. And you're also a humorist and an activist and an educator. You have such an interesting background. I just want to start there because, and I know you've been asked this question many, many times, if you can just talk a little bit about your journey. So where you started, why you're here, why we're talking and what it's all about. And then we can go into the various kind of lives of Dubs Weinblatt, because I feel like you just play so many different roles, and uh, I'd like to try to dive into a bunch of them.
1: I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and from a very, very early age, always knew that I was different than those around me. I was very aware of my sexual orientation, being attracted to not necessarily sexually, but just like emotionally to girls, to women. And my crushes were always on girls. And I didn't know anyone else that felt that way. There was not media representation, positive media representation around queer identities at that time. I was born in the mid 80s. I also didn't realize that I was struggling with my gender identity. I thought it was all kind of because of my sexual orientation. But hindsight is always wonderful and realizing that actually most of my struggles were because of my gender identity. I don't identify with what I was assigned at birth. I'm a genderqueer trans person, which means I don't identify within the binary that the world has set up of man and woman. And so growing up, I felt really isolated and really like an other. I felt like I didn't belong. I couldn't find my place. Even if I didn't have the language to really talk about that, I just felt really alone both at school and all of my Jewish spaces.
0: Did you have siblings?
1: I do. Yeah. I have an older sister and a younger brother.
0: Did you feel at all comfortable speaking with them
1: about this? No, I didn't talk to anybody about it. I'm close with everyone in my family, very close to my mom and I never felt comfortable and I, know I think about that a lot too, about why that was. And I think for a lot of queer people, I can't speak for everybody, but what I've learned over the years is that we look for signs, for guideposts of, is this a safe person to talk to? Or how are they going to react? I think part one of the scariest things about disclosing parts of your identity to someone is you don't know how they're going to react. And there's so many cases where people are kicked out of their homes or violently attacked because of who they are by family members, it can be very, very scary to come out. And it's not that anyone in my family was overtly homophobic or transphobic, but jokes said in passing or certain comments made about certain people in the community gave me the indication that it wouldn't be safe for me to share with them. Now they're saying, well, if you would have told me, it would have been different. But as a kid, I didn't know how to distinguish that. And and I didn't know that.
0: Which is interesting because you're kind of known for, and I've sat through a couple of your workshops, for using humor to not only disarm, but also make it a little bit easier and open up the aperture of acceptance for people to want to hear what you're saying, which I think is so interesting.
1: I think that comes from humor being a defense mechanism of deflecting the pain that I was feeling. But now I'm able to kind of Reframe how I use humor in a way to connect with people and to, like you said, to open people up to the willingness to learn. Moving through life with those feelings of isolation and depression and anxiety around all of these interactions that I've had through growing up, once I finally realized my true gender identity and was out to everyone in my life, I basically have dedicated my life to educating and trying to get through to people. That words matter in spaces and culture, it matters because it's impacting everyone who enters into your community, regardless of what that community is. What would my life have been like if I would have known a Dubs? If I would have known someone who was genderqueer, used they, them pronouns, and was also Jewish, my life would have been so much different. I think I could have seen that roadmap of possibility. I want to be that visible person for anyone who feels like they might be alone, because I don't want anyone to feel the way that I felt when I was younger.
0: So for a Dubs who is a listener, that's not the real Dubs, the OG Dubs, who might feel alone, who might not feel like they have allies, whether they're friends or family, who might be surrounded by an environment that feels far less open or conducive. What's your advice to them?
1: Well, my advice would be you're not alone, even though I know it it can feel that way at times. You're not alone. And there are so many communities all over the country, all over the world that are loving and embracing and affirming for however you identify. And I think one of the silver linings with the pandemic is that organizations and communities and groups have really expanded how folks are able to connect. And so there are so many support groups and so many online communities that folks can join. And the beauty of it is that you can do it anonymously. So you can go and you don't have to turn your camera on and you can change your Zoom name to something that won't identify who you are. So there's a mechanism of safety that wasn't there before. It really allows people to just be in community and not feel the pressure to show themselves until they're feeling safe and comfortable to do so.
0: As president of my temple, and actually it's how we met originally, it's through my temple and through an organization called Keshet that you're very involved with. I'm just kind of curious, do you and did you find the Jewish community supportive, helpful, open? I cannot stereotype and say the entire Jewish community is this or that. It's not binary, right? It's a continuum and it depends on the individual and the institution. But in general, talk a little bit about Judaism and your Jewish identity and how that intersects with what we're talking about and identity. Did you feel supported and what was that like? Like growing up.
1: I also I grew up in a reform synagogue. And I would say the overarching theme is no, I didn't feel supported. I didn't feel seen. And it's hard to kind of parse out because I wasn't out. I wasn't talking about it. So I don't know what actually would have happened if I would have shared. But what I do know is that at the time of me growing up, it still wasn't legal, quote unquote, in our synagogues for the rabbi to marry two people of the same gender. Or if it was, it wasn't ever happening. But at a certain point, it wasn't. And then it became, I can't remember the exact date. And it was different within each movement. So that's like a very clear signal to a young queer person of like, I don't belong here. If I can't even get married in this space that's supposed to be welcoming, like I don't belong here. And I think too, in thinking about it in terms of gender so many synagogues are set up in such a binary way. So the bar and bat mitzvah program doesn't give any space for folks who aren't a binary gender, a boy or a girl. And it's kind of like a passive way. Synagogues aren't doing it maliciously on purpose. That's just how it's always been. And so I think it's really challenging for some institutions to challenge what has always been and to kind of evolve and to create space for everybody. I wonder what it would have been like if there could have been a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, and a B mitzvah. And the child gets to choose which one would be the most affirming for them. Because I was forced to have a bat mitzvah, and that really was traumatizing for me. I didn't want a bat mitzvah. I didn't want to, quote unquote, become a woman. And I didn't have the language to say why, but I just knew so deeply and so innately that that was inaccurate and inauthentic to who I am. And so it's like all of these like little moments of, you know, I was very active in BBYO a youth Jewish youth group in high school, and their structure is boys' chapters and girls' chapters. Currently, they are working on becoming more expansive, and they do have all-gender chapters, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, that wasn't a thing. That wasn't on anyone's radar. And so it's like all of these like moments of really wanting my Jewish spaces. I didn't know what I needed at the time, but of course, looking back, and that is all of the work that I do now at Keshet is giving Jewish organizations the tools to expand and to make sure that every single Jewish person who wants to be part of their community feels like they
0: belong. First of all, all religion is highly genderized and Judaism is no different. I had never thought of it that way until we met you. We started an inclusion committee and it was interesting because when I took over to run our temple, again, voluntary job, but it's a big job especially in COVID, it was before COVID and then COVID hit and it's like, oh my gosh, the world has really just turned upside down. If you're struggling with affiliation and the reform movement and getting people engaged, it's even harder, right? When you have other things like a pandemic kind of thrown at you, but all that to the side, I remember when we raised the agenda was things like security and engagement and inclusion. And it came up with this little acronym, SAGE, or I was inclusion. And people first looked at me not in a hateful way, but in a questioning way and not in a bad way, they were just a little confused. They're like, well, what do you mean by inclusion? And they actually thought inclusion in their mind, they went immediately to black and brown communities. And I said, yes, that is what I mean, but that's part of what I mean. And I kind of went on into a much broader, more inclusive and broader definition of inclusion. And I talked about identity, gender identity sexual identity, expression, the first thing we looked at was what was once known as the Bar and Bat Mitzvah program. Now we just call it B'nai Mitzvah. So we replaced everything from Bar and Bat to B'nai, and that's a start. And I think the thing that I learned, which I'm kind of curious how you feel about, is that with discussions like these and dealing with multiple cohorts across different generations, what you can't do is go from zero to 60 and go into the left lane. You have to start in the right lane and then put on your signal, accelerate, and it's like a five-lane highway, and you need to do it in steps educating, informing, engaging people, and bringing them in along the way. And if you go too quick, too fast, you actually could do more damage and it could be catastrophic. That's just my own personal experience. It's a journey.
1: Institutionally, like in Keshet's mind, yes, the long sustainable change is the change that is the most effective. And personally, as someone who is so affected by the ways that Communities are built every time, it feels so much more urgent. So it's kind of like a both and of like, there are, we need to educate and we need to meet communities where they are. Otherwise, like you said, it's catastrophic because it becomes too overwhelming. So wanting to put that sense of urgency in as well as like, this isn't a back burner kind of initiative. This is like, we need to be working on it now. What are the low hanging fruits that we can do now that won't blow up our path? But what can we do now in the intermediate? and while we're building a foundation to keep the work moving.
0: When did you get involved with Keshet? And can you just talk a little bit more about what Keshet is and what Keshet does? There's a production company called Keshet too.
1: There are lots of Keshets. It's a Hebrew word for rainbow. So Keshet's a national organization that works for LGBTQ equality for Jews in Jewish life. So I'm the associate director of education and training for Metro New York. And so my full-time job Is working with Jewish institutions in the New York metro area on LGBTQ inclusion. So I work with them um, through trainings, through consultation, through resource building, sharing my story, even just me going into a space and sharing my story of what it's like as a trans person, as a queer person to move through Jewish spaces and not feel seen, and how that affected me personally is one tool to get folks to buy into the idea like, okay, this is the work that needs to be happening and to start to create that urgency, but also that lane changing signaling of like, we need to start moving. We also have a robust youth department supporting LGBTQ Jewish teens and allies uh, across the country and an advocacy department that works to pass uh, pro-LGBTQ legislation by engaging Jewish communities to be activists.
0: I can only imagine that you're quite happy now with this latest administration. I'm not even sure I can describe this in a way that has much meaning and impact, but they are obviously very much for, interested, and supportive of LGBTQ rights.
1: In Joe Biden's acceptance speech or something like that, naming identities of folks that he supports, he said the transgender community, I'm pretty sure that's the first president to ever name the trans community as a population that they care about. Not to say that other presidents haven't cared about the trans community, but to name it explicitly is so powerful. And Kamala has her pronouns in her bios on social media. And I've never seen a vice president have their pronouns. It might seem small, but it's huge. It's huge to see an administration. Even just naming that we exist and are in support is wild.
0: So I wanted to bring you into my agency pre-COVID, then COVID hit. Business priorities shifted to how do you survive the pandemic from a business standpoint and then get back to things that are part of who we are and our values and our course. So we finally got back to you. And a few weeks ago, about a month ago or so, we did a couple trainings and I got into a pretty heated debate. I wouldn't say it was a fight. And if it was, I'd say it's a lowercase f with my HR director, who I think is amazing. And quite frankly, Kate is the best HR director I've ever worked with, ever in the 30 years I've been working. But we had a disagreement. And I said, I don't understand why we can't make it compulsory, why we can't mandate that people identify their pronouns, at least in their emails and their auto signatures. And I said, It's 2021. Come on. We have a largely younger staff. They're as woke as woke can be. It's part of who we are as an agency. If they don't get it, then we have a much bigger fucking problem here, okay? And Kate's like, with all due respect, don't you think we need to educate them as to the why? And I said, you don't think they understand the importance of it? She's like, no, I don't. I think that we need to go through the process first. I'm like, all right, well, I'm still gonna put my pronouns in my signature. And I don't think it was a right or wrong answer, but it was an interesting debate. If anything, it accelerated finally getting you to do a Zoom, which interestingly was more impactful. It's not to say that you're not impactful in the room, but in a Zoom, the one thing that I realized that I hadn't even thought of was that people feel a little bit safer to ask a question anonymously in a chat with your colleague, where in a room they might not have felt comfortable raising their hand, even though I don't love Zoom and I don't love the virtual. There are some virtuous things about the virtual environment, and that's one of them. I just wanted to share that with you all those things because I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. But it's interesting that you know, my HR director is I don't think she would be upset by me saying this is in her early to mid 30s. And she pushed back pretty hard on me that it's not just about slapping your pronouns in your signature, which I don't disagree with, but I just assumed because a lot of the population in the agency is pretty young, and I also know where. They are, we have a very activist type culture on purpose, it's by design. I figured this is something that we should have done a long time ago and I felt like we were really late.
1: It's really challenging for organizations to make any kind of change without buy-in from the top. And so it's really heartening to know that you are so dedicated and on board to making these kinds of changes and have that kind of like fire of, come on, it's 2021, let's do this. That's my attitude as well. And I also agree with Kate of like, It's almost like it could appear as an empty gesture if we're just slapping rainbow stickers up and throwing our pronouns in if we don't know the why. If a client asks us, why do you have your pronouns? And then someone's like, "Um, because I was required to. It's very different than, oh, I just want to make sure that people know how to address me safely and respectfully. It's an invitation for folks to share their pronouns for me as well. I never recommend making sharing pronouns mandatory because there are folks who might not be comfortable sharing their pronouns yet. There are folks who are exploring. There are folks who don't know what pronouns would be the most affirming for them. And so to require them to put pronouns in a signature or in their Zoom name or on their business card, it can be really traumatic. When I started working at at January of 2017, so just had my four-year anniversary, I was still using she, her pronouns because I had never met anyone who'd used Any other they, them pronouns or any kind of gender neutral pronouns. So Keshet has this culture and we're a very small staff. We're like less than 25 people. And when I started, it was even way more or less, but it didn't matter. No matter what meeting we were in and who was in the meeting, we always did a quick round of names, pronouns, and title. And it just was the norm. And so I got to witness colleagues share their pronouns, they, them. And so that gave me kind of that path or that example or that representation that then allowed me to start thinking about, maybe I want to try that. And so I staffed one of our Shabbatanim, our weekend retreat over Shabbat for teens, and I was staffing it. And this was March, so just a few months after I started. It's a weekend where teens can come and bring their full Jewish selves and their full queer selves and are celebrated. It was the first time I had ever been in a space like that. In 30 plus years of living, that was my first time being in a space like that also. All of these teenagers were using all of these different sets of pronouns and were so out and proud about their different identities. I was literally in tears the entire weekend. I was exhausted after. I was barely even staffing because I was just crying because it was so beautiful and wonderful and affirming and inspiring. And so when I got back from that weekend, because of the culture that Keshet had set up, I was able to just, in the next meeting, give a different set of pronouns because it was just part of the fabric of what we did. And no one questioned it. No one said, but yesterday you said you, she, her pronouns. Everyone was like, okay, these are Dubs' new pronouns. It was just such a seamless way to integrate new pronouns for myself. And it was so affirming when colleagues would use those pronouns. And I was like, okay, this actually makes sense for me. And it was such a lovely experience because everyone was doing it. And of course, some people opted not to share their pronouns and that's okay too. I didn't have to advocate for myself. It just was built in. So there's, there will always be an opportunity for me to share what my pronouns are. And because it wasn't just the trans people doing it, it made it safer for me to feel comfortable sharing because most of the people were doing it.
0: Identifying your pronouns does signal to other parties that it invites them to do the same. And it also implicitly and explicitly, I suppose, says to them, you're safe here. You're safe with me. Be who you want to be. Don't try to hide. Don't pretend. Don't act. And I think that's really special. But I'm also curious in situations where individuals are feeling unsafe, where they can't express who they really are and how they identify. What is your advice in those situations? For me,
1: I have developed a little bit of a spidey sense of like, I can absolutely tell when someone's trying and makes a genuine mistake versus when they're being malicious. It's a survival mechanism that lots of trans people and queer people have built. We have to. We have to keep ourselves safe, first and foremost. Something that I've learned, and it's been a really hard thing to learn, is that setting boundaries is a beautiful thing. And taking care of myself and putting myself first should always be my priority. And so when I'm interacting with folks who do not want to respect me, I just simply will shut the conversation down. I don't have the patience for it. If you're not willing to learn and you're just going to be mean, <laughs> then I don't need to be in the space anymore because we're not being productive. I had someone message me on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, it's been now, who I knew my sophomore year of college, almost 20 years ago. You know, We're friends on Facebook and he reached out, no hello, no how are you recovering from surgery, was just, I want to learn about gender and pronouns. I'm ignorant about it. And I want to learn. And I was like, that's so great that you want to learn. There are so many wonderful resources online. That's so great. And he was like, I want to learn from you. And I was like, I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Why don't you do some research on your own? And then if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. I mean, he already was starting Not So Friendly, but then turned hostile and was like, that's bullshit. You have to educate me. And I was like, listen, I do this work 60 hours a week. And it's really important for me to have a work-life balance. And it's not my job to educate you. I think people get confused because my job is an educator in so many different ways. But that's when I have my professional hat on. And when I'm just dubs moving through the world, it's not my job to teach you unless I want to. He did not like that. And he was being very hostile with me, ranging from you're an asshole, you're arrogant, it's your job, you have to. And I was like, I don't have to do anything. And so I blocked him and I unfriended him. And I just like, that was how I took care of it. In real life, I'll say, you know what, I'm not really comfortable having this conversation anymore. Happy to pick this back up when we want to make this a productive conversation. It's different handling situations when someone's being malicious versus someone who's just making a mistake. Even folks with the best of intentions, I invite folks to realize the impact of that. I know like when people accidentally misgender me or use the wrong words to describe my identity. It's not coming from a place of malintent, but it still is impacting me in a negative way. An example I'll give is like, say you're on a crowded dance floor pre-COVID and someone steps on your toe and breaks your toe and you say, ow, that hurt. You hurt me in that moment. So let's say it's me stepping on your toe and I'll be like, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. Suck it up. Like, how would that feel? Versus. I'm so sorry I hurt you. How can I support you? I'm so sorry I hurt you. I didn't mean to.
0: Let me go get some ice.
1: Yeah, I didn't mean to break your toe, but I did. I'm impacting you still. And so I want to help you. And so that's the difference. Mistakes happen, but it's how you react in those moments. And we're human. None of us are perfect. There have been moments where I've made mistakes and have fucked up how I responded to them. But what's important is that we learn from those fuck-ups and We try to do better. There's also nothing wrong with fucking up in the moment and realizing it and then telling that person, hey, yesterday when I said X, Y, and Z, that wasn't fair. I handled that wrong and I'm really sorry. And I'd like to make it better if there's something I can do. The world would be such a better place if we could all admit to being wrong and admit to knowing that things change and people change and we need to stay open to that.
0: And a lot of what you're talking about, it's an overused word, but it's empathy and trying to understand what the other person is feeling, what they're going through, not to be too cliched, but what is it like to be in their shoes? Hopefully not with a broken toe. While I'm heartened by the fact that we have an administration and leadership in the United States now that is far more in line with my values, I'm still a little kind of hungover to press is what I call it for the past four years because I'm concerned that There's still 70-something million fucking people who voted for a tyrannical, hateful, divisive, insurrectionist. I don't know what the question is here other than I'm looking for someone to say to me, you know what, though? That doesn't mean that all of them are bad. It doesn't mean that there isn't hope. It doesn't mean that the world is always going to be full of animus and divisiveness to the extent that we've seen it, and eventually we will come together as one nation. I just want someone to say that to me, but no one said it yet.
1: I think what's important when I think about what you just shared. My first thought is, yeah, I can't believe 70 million people still voted for him and what the fuck. And I actually just posted about this yesterday of feeling that hope and despair can exist at the same time. It's not, I think our brains and we're so conditioned to think of either or, most things are both and. And so really trying to hold that terribleness can exist at the same exact time of hope and of moments of change and inspiration. And when I think specifically about those 70 million people, after I've thrown up in my mouth a little bit, on the one hand, it's really challenging to want to show empathy for people who are actively voting against my, as a trans person, as a Jewish person, like dignity and right to live as a human and deserving of all of the rights and et cetera. And I try to wonder where are these people coming from and where are they getting their information from, their misinformation from? And I just try to ask the questions of there has to be more to it, because I really think that if people were to take the time to really educate themselves with accurate information, and I think that's part of it. And and now I'm just rambling, but I think the other part is there's so much shame around so many different ways of being in the world, and my brain always goes to gender identity and sexual orientation or gender expression, and people are afraid to live authentically because of the ways in which our society is built. When you kind of move outside of what what society expects you to be, whether it's with all of those identities I just listed or or otherwise, there's a lot of shame around that, and there's bullying and there's harassment, and so many people don't want to deal with that and don't want to look at themselves in the mirror and see who they are truly, because there's so much pain that can come with being kicked out of your home for who you are. And so I could imagine that people who voted in the wrong, <laughs> I'm sure some of them are just assholes, but I think a lot of them maybe are struggling or maybe don't know or don't have a place where they feel like they belong And so they're clinging to these ideas of hate because they don't know where they belong. That's not the most articulate I've ever been in my life, but that's just kind of what I think about when I think about those people.
0: I totally get what you're saying. And there's also a part of me that thinks it took a pandemic and the murder of George Floyd to get Trump out of office. Think about it. If those two things hadn't happened, do you really think Biden would have won? I don't know. I think those two things in combination, especially the pandemic, talking about inequities, inequalities, injustice, I think that did create a stirring, which helped Biden win. And if those things didn't happen, do we really think Biden would have won? And I'm not so sure. And the reason why is because the economy was and still is. So strong, at least from a stock market standpoint, even though it's really there's inequities there, too, because people who have higher paying jobs and office jobs are doing okay relative to people who have hourly wages and or are, you know, grocery workers and in retail and and other industries. I just wonder about that. And that's what upsets me a little bit. But then I think, well, there must be some higher frickin being then. But unfortunately, that higher being Took, we're on almost a half a million lives in the U.S. in order to change the administration, and that's why I get all weird and spiritual, and I go really wonky. But I try to be an optimist, but I do wonder that. That's like a big question for me.
1: I wonder it too, and then I'm like, who cares? We're here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like,
0: <laughs> you're right. I like that. That's why I love you. That's why I have you on. Fuck, I'm not gonna keep looking back anymore. I just want to stay where I am, and I'm really happy now. And my anxiety level was like at a nine for four years straight. It's like at a two, two, three right now. And that's pretty good for me, because I usually hover on an average day between five and six. So I'm pretty good. I'm feeling okay. Let's just talk about acronyms for a second, because I think there's a lot of confusion around this as well. I often say LGBTQ. There's also LGBTQIA+. Can you walk us through and walk me through and our listeners through what that means? And are they interchangeable? And if I just say LGBTQ+, Am I being offensive? Am I marginalizing? Am I leaving communities out? How do you keep up with all this? And maybe I'm saying this the wrong way. I'm a cisgender white male, which is as boring as plain as it can possibly get, right? There's a lot of people like me, though, who need to understand language and words. You started this podcast with Words Matter, and they do. So just talk me through that. Talk us through that.
1: LGBTQ is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer or questioning. And then the other acronym that you said is what I just said, plus intersex, agender or asexual, and then plus is to indicate that there are many more identities that aren't specifically directly called out in this acronym. And I would say that it's a hard question because there's not a right answer. That's the thing. I think that's a holdup for a lot of people is that there is not one right answer for a lot of things because every single trans people aren't a monolith and What might feel good for me might be offensive for somebody else. What I encourage people to do is to turn on their active listening skills and see how a group or a person is identifying themselves and take their lead. So an example I'll give is... The word queer is very empowering for a lot of people. It really encompasses who they are. It takes into account sexual orientation and gender identity, and it's an indication that that person is living an identity that's not what society deems as, quote unquote, the norm. So it's really empowering for a lot of people. And then when you ask folks of an older generation, it is really derogatory and it is really offensive
0: I was going to say that growing up, if you used the word queer, that was it's a very, very derogatory term. And my mom always said, never, ever say that. Exactly. And so
1: I think it's a perfect example to highlight that there's not one right way to talk about things because it depends on who your audience is. And so at Keshet, we, for a really long time, when our acronym did not include the Q, Because as it was, the work that we were doing was essentially geared more towards older folks. And so that Q was an indication of offense. So it wasn't included. And then as our work evolved and shifted and we started skewing towards younger generations upon research, they found that they were being left out because the Q wasn't part of the acronym. And so we ended up adding the Q only like five or six years ago. And Keshet's been around for like 20 years. And it's not to say that we were doing it wrong before and we're doing it right now, but we're doing it in a way that speaks to the audience that we're trying to connect with in this moment and being open to the fact that that might change again. I can't answer which one's right, LGBTQ versus LGBTQIA+. It just depends on who you're trying to talk about and talk to.
0: And I think intent matters. We talked about it a little bit earlier about spidey senses, but I think it also depends on if your intent is pure and honest and you're trying to be inclusive and welcoming and understanding, then I think it's okay.
1: To a certain extent, yes. I think that along with what you said was so beautiful, there's more to it than that. I think there also has to be a willingness to hear when that beautiful intention is still hurting someone and the openness and willingness to say, thank you for trusting me and sharing with me how this is affecting you. I'll do my own research to see how I can improve. And if you have suggestions... I'm open to hearing them as well. I think that's the thing is we shouldn't always put the educating on the person who is just hurt and making space to let them know, but if you want to share, I'm here to hold that information. Trans people have existed forever. And the use of they, them pronouns as a singular pronoun has been around for a really, really long time. And so none of these things are new. What's new is that we're talking about it. And so we're in this kind of moment right now Where we're all trying to get our bearings, we're all trying to do the right thing, and inevitably people are going to fuck up. And so I think just to go back to what you're saying of like, yes, this intention of kind and kindness and willingness to do the best that we can is so important, but really wanting to highlight that that impact is actually still what matters and that organizations and people. I implore folks to just be open and willing to listen and to admit, coming back to this again, admit to, I made a mistake and I didn't mean to hurt you, but I did and I'm sorry and I want to make it better.
0: I'm in the fortunate position, at least for now, for many years now, where I work with a lot of younger people in the marketing, communications, PR, kind of advertising, social media world. You tend to hire younger people. And one of the beauties of it is that we always have like a very full we call it a fellowship program, but it's an internship program, and you learn from them. And I always say to interns, we need to learn as much from you as you're going to learn from us. And that's what kind of keeps me a little bit more awake than others, especially as a man who's 50 years old. Because I'm a comms person, I think of everything in movements and moments I remember back in 2018, I do a lot with my alma mater, George Washington University, very active. And I teach there and we'd sponsored fellowships for folks who are in underpaid or unpaid internships over the summer to help them because they still want to pursue their dreams and work for a certain organization, but not have to eat cat food, basically. Nothing against cats, but cat food doesn't taste so good. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was hosting a group of about 35 juniors and seniors from GW. I remember it like it's yesterday, even though it was two and a half years ago. And we were doing introductions. And it was the first time ever when they so they start, I end, obviously, because then I go into like a spiel and I do case studies and about the agency, all this stuff. One of them, except for maybe two out of let's say 30 of them, they all identified their pronouns. And they all said, My name is Aaron, my pronouns are he, him, his, or whatever it was. And he went over them. I was kind of taken away. My breath was taken away, not in a bad way, but I thought to myself, Whenever things take hold in a campus at universities, they take hold in the market eventually. And I'm like, this is the beginning of something that's actually quite special and really interesting. And by the way, I know nothing about, I'm confused, actually, and I need to learn more. And I kind of delved into, this is like two and a half years ago. And, and I say that because you're talking about when you joined Keshet in 2017, that was just about a, you know, a year before I had this moment. I think it was probably around then where pronouns and that discussion probably became more mainstream. I could be wrong, but that's my gut. I could be wrong. I
1: remember when I first came out and started sharing with folks that I'm actually gender queer. I've always, always have been. And so many of my friends would say, is there another set of pronouns that I can use for you? And and was coming from a place of love and care and support. And for me, I wasn't ready to share. And so I was like, oh, I still use she, her, like was like really taken aback looking back, I'm like, that was so kind of them to like offer that for me because I wasn't ready to deal with that, which is also going back to not making it a mandate for folks to share. Because like for me, that would have been really anxiety producing. I have found for me when I'm struggling with a particular part of my identity, I tend to pretend it doesn't exist. And so that's why I can't really speak to when that conversation became actually, because I ignored it. Very intentionally ignored it because I didn't want to have to deal with it.
0: How old were you when you came out?
1: I came out as gay at 20, and I came out as genderqueer at 29, and I'm 36 now.
0: You must sleep on ice. You do not look 36. Thank you. So I'm one of four. I'm the youngest of four, and I have a gay brother and a gay sister. And my brother came Mm -hmm. out when he was about 19. That was back in the late 80s. So that's pretty courageous, actually, because even though it doesn't seem like that long ago the atmosphere is not what it is today, even though obviously we still have a lot more work to do. And my sister came out later in life when she was in her early thirties. I think that growing up and having two gay siblings gave me a much different perspective on the world. So I try to put myself in a position of folks who did not have that benefit because quite frankly, it's an advantage. It really is because we were having these discussions. It wasn't atypical or abnormal It was just a discussion that we had when I was very young. And by the way, my siblings were way older than me, eight, and 6 years older than me. So I had kind of an education, if you will, or at least exposure at a much younger age, which I'm really grateful for, quite frankly. And sometimes I question, why is it that we're still talking about this? I don't understand, you know? It doesn't seem odd to me.
1: I think that's a perfect example of how... And why representation and visibility is so important, because it is an education. you did you got firsthand experience in witnessing what it's like for people who hold marginalized identities to move through the world. And I would gather the folks those going back to the seventy million, might not have that same exposure, might not know someone personally who that they actually have a connection with. I think it's really, really hard to vote against someone you know and love and care about, meaning their rights, not like specifically.
0: And what I love about what you do and the intersectionality amongst, I guess, being an educator and an activist, identifying as a Jew, loving Judaism and the values and Jewish values and the culture and being so active in our Jewish community, it also takes away the bullshit argument that highly religious people often have saying use religion as a shield or as an excuse to not accept something. One of the things, again, I love about Joe Biden is he's a devout Catholic. So that's great. But at the same time, even though he is a devout Catholic, he also socially is very progressive and very open and supports LGBTQ plus rights. That's one of the things I think is so important is that he basically took that shield away, at least not explicitly, but implicitly. And I'm excited to see what type of impact that has over the next four years.
1: That goes back to the things aren't either or, but can be both and.
0: So you also co-founded something called Crafter Truth. And that is where you have workshops on LGBTQ inclusion. I don't know if it was through Craft Your Truth or some other organization that my company hired you. It almost doesn't matter. But what I'm curious about is this notion of humor we talked about a little bit earlier and improv specifically and how you use improv to educate people on marginalized communities and LGBTQ rights and words and things that we've been talking about.
1: So, Crafter Truth is an organization that I co founded with my friend Jeffrey Kidwell, where we invite teaching artists to work with us with folks who hold marginalized identities within the LGBTQ community. And we encourage them to pick a story they want to share. It could be something to do with their queer identity or it doesn't have to. And then they work with their teaching artist to craft their truth, to craft some kind of performance piece. And then depending on the type of workshop it is, we either perform it for each other, or put on like a fundraiser for and invite folks from the outside world to come in and watch these performances. So that's Craft Your Truth. Thank You for Coming Out is a queer improv show that I founded in 2015, where I invite LGBTQ folks to share a coming out story. And then the improvisers use improv to bring those stories to life. So pulling like different details from the coming out stories and bringing to life these stories that these folks are sharing. And so through doing this, through humor, through improv, a couple of things are happening. One, we get to hear coming out stories from all different kinds of folks who hold different identities. So that's education in and of itself because it's exposure to folks who might not have known something about a certain identity. And also just the experiences that people have in coming into themselves and what that feels like. And then the beautiful thing about watching thank you for coming out as the improv show is that when someone is sharing their story so many times storytellers are like but my it's not funny like my story isn't funny so like should i be doing a comedy show and my answer is hell yes you should because it doesn't have to be funny what happens is is the improvisers were trained to pull little details that might feel passing or like innocent in a story But the improvisers will pull that out. And so what happens is they turn what is potentially a not funny, painful moment in someone's life in a loving, caring way because everyone on stage is LGBTQ. So no one is up there to make fun of or malicious. They're there already with an understanding of we want to take care of this person in this story. So what they do is, though, like if the storyteller makes a passing comment about they were in a shop right or something, I'm making this up. But then like then maybe this improv scene is just set in a shop right and then they like make fun of ShopRite, but do it in a way that pulls like from the characters. It's hard to verbally explain, but it's really beautiful.
0: It's kind of like sketch comedy-ish, sort of, right?
1: Yeah. What I've heard from storytellers is that it's very healing to get to see their story that was once painful or parts of it painful to have it reimagined, to find the humor in these little moments that they didn't even think were funny. The other beautiful thing about improv is that it's make-believe. It's pretend. You get to come onto the stage as an improviser and be whoever you want. And it's immediately the tenet, the core tenet of improv is yes and. So agreeing immediately and then building on this new reality that we just agreed on. And so when people, and I did this too, of walking onto the stage and trying on a different identity, trying on a different way of, of talking or interacting with people or even just holding myself is actually a very affirming way to explore gender. And it's always met with what you're doing is true. Yes. And how can I build on that? When done properly, a very safe space for folks to just see what it's like. And so that's what's really important to me about Thank You For Coming Out. And that's why, you know, in the podcast too is the same name of giving a platform for folks to share their stories and for us to to talk about our experiences so that folks who are listening might not have known X, Y, and Z about this kind of identity or didn't know the impact of when they do this and just getting a, a little window into someone's life. And it's building empathy. It's building understanding and it's adding to our stories of experiences that folks can pull from of Like, oh, you know, I heard whatever it is.
0: I guarantee you for sure that there are folks who are listening who are thinking, what's the best way to get in touch with Dubs? Because I want them to either speak, lead a workshop, or just provide some inspiration, some guidance, and some illumination for me or my organization. So what is the best way for those listening to follow you and to reach out to you? I'm
1: very active on my Instagram, which is at E-L. D-U-B-B-S-12. So L-dubs, like the dubs. And send me an email, dubs at dubswineblatt.com.
0: You have a name that's like just destined to be famous. You are kind of famous in my mind. I feel like you should write a book too. I feel like that's next for you. I am writing a book. <laughs> yes. See, I knew it. I didn't know it. I Honestly, no one told me that, but I feel like that's in your destiny. You need to write a book.
1: I don't have like an agent, but it does, it's not stopping me from writing it. And I just like really want to write a book. And so I know that it's when it's meant to be, it will be.
0: I love that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for just being you for everything that you do. I think you have such a unique way of addressing and giving voice and shining light on issues that sure, a lot of people are focused on, but you approach it in such a creative, unique and disarming and loving way that I just haven't seen before. Thank you for that. I can't wait to see this next. I really can't.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This has been an episode of Brand On Purpose with Aaron Quipkin,
1: the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com.